When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Justin Zorn and Lee Mars. They are the authors of the new book, Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. And this book is definitely one you want to take notice of. It's a field guide of sorts for getting beyond the noise. Not just the noise in our ears, but also on our screens and in our heads. All those different versions of noise to signal ratio, basically. And in the book, they draw on lessons from neuroscience, business, spirituality, politics, the arts. And they explore why auditory, informational, and internal silence is essential. Not just for mental clarity, but also for physical health and for community. I know that sometimes I'm personally scared of silence. I'm somebody who goes to bed listening to music or a podcast often. It helps me get to sleep. It's a habit. Trust me, I've been doing it since about junior high, so most of my life. But even I know that silence is powerful and essential, and that's what we dig into in this conversation. If you're somebody like me who's scared of silence or just has an issue with it from time to time, trust me, there is something to be had here for tapping in to silence. So I'm going to get out of the way and just say enjoy this conversation with Justin Zorn and Lee Mars. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show Justin Zorn and Lee Mars. Welcome to Beyond the To-Do List. Thanks, Eric. Thank you, Eric. Glad to have you both here. You have an amazing book out. This is a book, honestly, that I had kind of an inkling of an idea of like, man, somebody should write a book about this like years ago, but I couldn't quite articulate it. It's called Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. And I think everybody could admit we're in a world of noise. Things feel noisy, even if that's not the word somebody would use to articulate the noise. It just feels like there's a constant hum and buzz that varies (laughs) on different levels. Both of your backgrounds, though, are very much in, up till this book point, advocating and calling attention to things and essentially making noise about things in the world that need to be addressed. So I'm curious how, from that type of a perspective and approach, you came to this idea, this genesis, this catalyst of, no, we need to talk about this issue. You know, for us, it really came from a moment of feeling despondent, feeling like, what are we going to do about this crazy world? How can we possibly be effective in bringing a little bit more sanity to our world, our culture, our society, and our individual lives right now? And we both had this intuition, like the place to look for the answer was in silence. Not just getting beyond the noise, yes, that's important, but finding pristine attention, finding deep silence, and listening in silence, and that that would be the way that we would find our way out of that whole feeling of despondence. So we we decided to do some research and some writing and some contemplation on this subject and do some experiments in our own lives, and uh, we wrote an article about it for Harvard Business Review. Lee, what would you add? Yeah, that was just us sort of testing the water as we wrote an article for Harvard Business Review, focusing on silence, mostly from an auditory perspective. And then that 
article, to our surprise, went viral. So we had this sense that there was something we were tapping into that deserved some more attention. And so we followed those cookie crumbs talking with all sorts of people, neuroscientists, poets, politicians, a man incarcerated on death row who's become a close friend, a Grammy-winning opera singer, a cowboy lumberjack, you know, an Air Force lieutenant colonel, asking them this question, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? And those conversations were so rich and they led us down this path of exploring silence in, in a multidimensional kind of capacity and the many areas of noise that is impacting our lives so much. And that led us to writing this book. It seems like in all of the work that you've done up till this point, you've been working on these issues and, you know, essentially negotiating with people, large and small groups, as to how we can best advocate for this cause or insert here. But you were coming up against all these different symptoms of the main problem, but had to figure out eventually that there was a core root issue that was causing those symptoms. In other words, the lack of silence or the noise. Let's describe this problem a little bit. I mean, because I think, again, I think most people, especially going through the last few years, whether that's pandemic related or politics related or social media, and these are all compounding Venn diagram factors that just kind of almost point the way in a way. Talk a little bit about your discovery of the main issue of this lack of silence. Sure. Yeah. When we had a hunch that we, in the process of writing this book, confirmed that the world is noisier than it's ever been. But it's not just noisier in our ears, it's noisier on our screens and in our heads. It's the auditory noise, but also the informational noise and the internal noise, too. So noise, in two words, is unwanted distraction. It's that which makes claims on our consciousness. It's what interferes with our true perception and our intention. So when we say the world is noisier than it's ever been, like there's empirical research showing that, you know, fire engine sirens, for example, are up to six times louder than they were a century ago because they have to break through the sounds of our cityscapes. The National Park Service estimates that noise pollution doubles or triples every 30 years. And, you know, you look at research all over the world as to people living with what's truly dangerous for their health, levels of noise on different continents all over the world. But it's also the informational noise, too. And back in 2010, Eric Schmidt, when he was the CEO of Google, made this estimate that every two days, we create as much information as we did from the dawn of civilization until 2003. And a human being just can't handle that much more information than we can handle. It's there's a kind of upward bounds to how much information we could process at any time. So what we started exploring was that this rise of auditory noise in our world, unwanted distraction, unwanted interference, and the rise of informational noise, not just all sound, not just all data, but the distraction, the surplus, more than what we want. What all this was doing was creating a kind of surplus of information, of noise, of thought in our heads, this internal noise. So we looked to the work of Ethan Cross, who's a psychologist at the University of Michigan, who found that these days, you know, according to most indicators, we listen to something that's the equivalent of like 320 State of the Union addresses worth of inner monologue every single day in our heads in this compressed internal speech. So all this is to say our world is noisier than it's ever been. I feel like it's almost like a boiling the frog kind of a thing, right? Where it's just slowly the temperature turns up and you don't notice it. And the frog doesn't notice it. He just thinks he's in a sauna and then a hot tub and so on. And then he's dead. I'm curious if there's any kind of correlation to, you know, markers here for data. For example, like my kids have grown up in a constantly more noisy world than I did. Now, it's the same level of noise now for all of us, but they started off at a much larger level or higher level of noise than I did and have now been, you know, grown accustomed to it is probably not the way, the best way to put it. I'm sure there's issues. I mean, 
in terms of information, in terms of just scope. I mean, even some of my college friends and I have said to each other, can you imagine that we've got all the, you know, we've got within reach of our pocket pulling out a device, all the information in the world, essentially, and what that can do to you psychologically. We didn't grow up with it, but gradually became accustomed to it. But somebody who grew up with it and the difference between the generational approaches here. It just I'm kind of diving in too deep and saying this is overwhelming, but hoping you have some wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> well, we hope so too. Or that was the journey that we set out on to find. It's absolutely louder, as you said. And one of the things we emphasize in this book is it's not just louder because we individually are making poor choices or we parents are doing the wrong thing. Both Justin and I are parents as well, struggling, you know, trying to navigate those waters. But noise is our most celebrated addiction as a society, we argue. You know, it comes down to what we value in terms of our economy, too. If we think about the way we measure progress as a society, we usually use economic growth as measured by gross domestic product. But if you have a pristine forest, its only value, according to GDP, is if you chop it down and sell the lumber at Home Depot. You know, and you could say the same thing about human attention. If you're simply in a moment of pristine attention, enjoying time in nature, being with your children, enjoying a piece of art, doing something in silence, listening to the silence, there's no value there that registers. It's only if you're able to take that and commoditize it and turn it into eyeballs on a page in terms of social media or in terms of advertising revenue. So how do we switch our metrics of success? Yeah, it's it's very interesting to me. I can't help. It brings up to me, you know, we've talked about focus. We've talked about eliminating or curing, dealing with distractions on this show before because it's a productivity show. And this goes beyond that. This, in, in true sense of beyond the to-do list, we're going beyond just the productivity side of things, but we're going to actual health. We're going to actual sanity. <laughs> and I love the phrase pristine attention. It makes me think of something akin to Cal Newport's deep work that we've talked about on the show before, but it goes beyond that. And I'm curious, can you describe, we know the world is noisy, but what is that noise doing to us? Yeah, we, in fact, this is why we came to writing this book. What we were noticing is this is actually, Justin was pointing us in the direction that our ability to really focus on what we wanted, to intend and put our efforts and energy there was being encumbered by all this noise. So that's not just like not just getting your to-do list done, right? Not just getting your work done. We're talking about our time with our family. What we're here to do, our purpose for being is getting encumbered by all this noise on all these different levels. So there's an urgency here, and we really do feel it for all aspects of our lives. What we're here to do and our purpose for being here is being encumbered. We're deeply concerned by that. And yet we do think there's a way, a path forward, even in the midst of this noise. In the book, you talk about the science of this, why silence is essential for our bodies, our minds, our spirit, all our whole being. We need silence. And because we're getting so much less of it, again, it's, it's kind of the thing I was talking about earlier where I'm concerned with, well, I grew up and it was noisier than for my parents and my kids. It's noisier than it was for me. And I'm curious what the science is of why silence is essential. Yeah, it's a really was an important journey for us to find a long lineage here. You know, more than 150 years ago, Florence Nightingale, this pioneering British nurse, was responsible for a hospital taking care of people during the Crimean War of wounded soldiers. And the conditions were absolutely atrocious. But in that context, she prioritized noise, taking care of noise, which a lot of people at the time just didn't understand. She said that noise was the most cruel absence of care against a person sick or well. And what she understood was that noise drives the fight-or-flight response in the body, which in turn impedes healing. And this is what scientists, what medical researchers across different fields are discovering now, that too much noise drives our fight-or-flight response. It impedes our ability to heal, to concentrate. And accordingly, there is 
clear correlation between levels of noise and cardiovascular disease, as well as conditions like stroke, but also depression and a variety of conditions related to difficulty concentrating. But we look at some new research that shows that it's not just that noise undermines health, it's that listening to silence is actually edifying for the health. There was a study at Duke Medical School some years back that tested the effect of different types of sounds on the brains of mice. And it was silence more than classical music, more than white noise, more than the mice pup sounds that stimulated the growth of neurons in the hippocampus, which is the region of the brain associated with memory. And they used mice rather than people because, you know, it wasn't the most humane study, really. I mean, they were keeping these mice in in this anechoic chamber, this soundless room, for very long periods of time. And it was listening to silence over those periods of time that they found in the brains of mammals stimulates the growth of the parts of the brain associated with memory. And what the research, what the, the lead scientists in the research said was that trying to hear in silence activates the brain and promotes neural development. So it's this act of listening in silence, which is so counterintuitive for us, Eric. I mean, we don't usually listen to silence. We listen to music, you know, maybe we listen to people talking, you know, we listen to everything but silence. But there's this ancient wisdom of the power of listening to silence. In India, there's an ancient tradition called Nada yoga, which is the yoga of sound or the sound of silence, which is all about listening to silence. Pythagoras, the mathematician and philosopher, implored his students to listen to silence and even required his inner circle of students to spend five years in silence before they could study with him. So there's an ancient lineage to what modern science is showing. So as we explored the science of silence, which is not easy to say, we were interested in that silence was previously considered a control variable in all these studies. That is, it was thought to be sort of nothing, you know, just a coming back to baseline. But increasingly in the modern day studies, they were finding it was actually that positive force, even a place of healing and growth, sustainable growth, like Justin was pointing us towards. So even though Florence Nightingale and Pythagoras and others have for many years, and even conventional wisdom, the the benefits of quiet, the ability to convalesce, to heal in silence and quiet has been long known, but really we're just catching up to this in modern day science including in neuroscience, looking at what silence internally looks like in the mind. So we asked this question, what is silence of the mind? And we asked a professor of biobehavioral health and medicine, Joshua Smythe, that question. And he said, well, silence is or quiet is what people think quiet is. It's what we experience quiet to be. It's a subjective experience. And so that was really interesting as we started to see like, ah, yes, there's no maybe no specific brain state that we can describe as silence, but we do have some clues. And flow states is one of those things where actually the default mode network is deregulated and there is not any attentional capacity to focus on self-reflective thought. Those are those negative thoughts, the self-talk that is taking place. Justin was pointing us towards that internal dialogue, which can be so harmful, that chatter, the you know, criticism, worry, anxiety, depression, all these things that are on the rise in a flow state or in a state like that, those voices are quieted. And instead, we're in this space where the ego is maybe not so present or in the foreground, and we're instead feeling largely connected to something bigger than ourselves, something greater than ourselves. Also in in moments of meditation, if we're in deep meditation, moments of awe, mystical experiences, there's a common umbrella called self-transcendent experiences, a whole new area across disciplinary of sciences that is looking at this internal quiet. Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated with the correlation between this and meditation because we've talked about that a few different times. In fact, I've got a guest coming up to talk about that in a couple months. And in my naive and basic understanding of meditation, it's that you can't really get your brain to be silent per se, because you try to, or you, you try to focus on your breath and a thought comes up and you can either react to that thought or put it away, let it go. There are different approaches, but that essentially your brain won't stop 
bringing things to you. However, I think there is a kind of practice or prolonged practice of having a meditation practice and ritual where those thoughts don't bubble up as much or you start to experience, I think, what you're starting to get at, which is that internal healing through science and silence. Yeah. You know, we asked quite a few scientific and medical authorities this question, what is silence in the mind? And the near consensus we found is that a mind that's totally still and totally silent is a mind that's dead. And that's not what we're talking about here. You know, we're talking about the kind of silence that's in an alive and vibrant mind. And it comes to a broader question of whether there even is, Eric, such a thing as silence. We're not really sure in a universe where everything is buzzing and churning and vibrating, even at the subatomic level. And, you know, we look in the book at the story of a composer in the 20th century named John Cage in the 1940s, 1950s, who started studying silence. And he went into an anechoic chamber on the Harvard campus, one of these totally soundless booths. And when he was there, he told the engineer in charge that it wasn't working properly because he kept hearing these two sounds, one low pitch sound, one high pitch sound. And the engineer said, oh, no, no, it's working properly. The low pitch sound is your blood and circulation. The high pitch sound is your nervous system and operation, which for us was like an indication. Maybe there's no such thing as the experience of total silence. And, you know, with what we were talking about before of, and the noise, the absence of noise being the absence of unwanted distraction. We realize that's okay if there's not perfect silence in the world, because as Lee was saying, silence is what we think it is. Silence is how we experience it. And this for us brings us to one of the challenges of meditation. You know, in our culture today, you know, we've had 40 or so years of mindfulness being at least somewhat mainstream, but we still see a lot of people beating themselves up for not meditating enough or asking themselves questions like, am I doing it right? Or feeling kind of constricted, like they have to meditate in a certain way with the right bells and cushions and the right posture. And Eric, part of the reason we decided to write this book was to give people the license to stop asking questions like, am I doing it right? To simply tune into silence as you experience silence, because everyone Everyone knows what silence feels like at some level. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I can't help but think there's a specific film that has two kind of examples of silence or lack of silence in it. And it kind of indicates the perspective that we've had up till this point. The movie is Shawshank Redemption. I think it's my favorite movie ever. And there's a part where the main character is put in solitary as a punishment, where he can do nothing but 
be there by himself with his own thoughts for a week and then I think even a month at some point in the film. The other part of that film is a place where that same character puts on a stereo of an opera singer on a turntable and puts it up to the the prison PA system and it's blaring out over the yard and everybody looks up and is in awe and kind of it's a it's a touching moment it's a very cinematic moment and in those two things it's almost saying no the sound is the glorified thing it the high thing the thing to reach to we've had a lack of that and i don't think that's necessarily wrong because that's not really what we're talking about here but that the then the punishment is to be grounded or put in your room or you know sent to solitary where it is silent and you have to deal with you know your own thoughts what is your what's your perspective on that i love it. i haven't seen that movie in so long but i love that thank you for bringing it back into this presence I think one of the things kind of going back to what we talked about with Joshua Smythe about silence being quiet, being what you experience is quiet to be for some and in some moments, perhaps that time alone would be of the deepest silence. For others, it might be terrifying, right? Or just torturous, right? For that beautiful mute moment of music, perhaps the, there's a quietening inside each of the people listening for just a moment. Because what we found when we asked people about the deepest silence they've ever known, that they would point us sometimes to these extraordinary artistic moments or really auditory loud ones, right? But what the, the voices inside those, you know, that, that clamor and self-rumination, all those, that those voices, that chatter would be quiet. So again, that quiet is what people think quiet is. Quiet is what we experience it to be. And I would be really interested in going back to that little moment in the film, what happens after that gorgeous sound, the silence that might follow in that wake. That type of silence is extraordinary and we point towards that. So again, it's not really about just auditory sound and silence or even just being alone or being with others, we can actually feel the deepest silence. We often feel the deepest silences ever in life in the company of others, right? So this is not the same as solitude. We do explore in this book all the kind of feedback back loops and the distinctions and diversity of experiences that are had in silence, the many ways we can find our way there. And your mention of the experience in solitary confinement reminds us of and the heart and soul of this book is someone who spent a lot of time in solitary confinement. Jarvis J. Masters, who spent 30 years in San Quentin prison for a crime that the preponderance of evidence shows, and we believe that he did not commit. And he walks us through the process of finding quiet, navigating the noise in one of the noisiest places imaginable. Because even in solitary confinement, he brings us through how noisy it is with the you know, screaming, hollering you hear from other inmates with the yelling from guards with so many of the alarms and sounds happening and also the noise of the internal fear that people face in prison, how it's just this extraordinarily uncertain life where things are just so precarious and so noisy in that way. And Jarvis, who is a trained advanced student of Buddhism and a teacher and an author of you know books that you know describe his process. He walks us through how he finds quiet. And he describes how he quiets the noise by quietening his responses to the noise, by noticing the way he's actually hearing noises and allowing those noises to proliferate in his consciousness and how he can find ways through that, find ways to find more quiet within himself. Or work with silence with people who wouldn't otherwise be open to it in prison. And Jarvis shows us too, there's this, there's this link between the quiet and compassion, between his way of connecting with other people. When he's able to get quiet for himself, when he's able to find more quiet attention, he's able to notice what other people are going through more and stop judging them so much and stop feeling so many negative reactions to people in this extraordinarily difficult setting in death row in San Quentin prison. I feel like we've all been through a little bit of a prison moment, if you will, in the past few years with lockdowns and varying degrees of 
staying in our homes or apartments or whether and whether that means solitude by ourselves or with a pet or locked down with family members. And that brings a whole other different set of noise to it. I am reminded that right after that scene in the movie where the the opera singer and the PA that Andy gets thrown into solitary because of doing that. And then he, you know, I think it's a few weeks, a month, whatever. Later, he shows up at the lunch table with the rest of them. And they're like, hey, you're back. And he was like, yeah, easiest time I ever did. And they were like, what do you mean? He's like, I had the music with me. And they're like, oh, you, you, they let you take the record player down there with you? He's like, no, I had it with me in here. And he taps his head like he had it with him. He internalized it and had it with him. And that was kind of a way to to get through that that silence that negative time of silence where there wasn't other people. So I think mm-hmm. I want to identify that there's a definitely difference as you've brought up. There's a difference between solitude and silence. Absolutely. And silence that is chosen versus one that is enforced or, you know, silence is oppression, which we spend a lot of time in the book looking at the distinction between silence that is your choice and is that quiet, blissful, vast, expansive kind of experience versus silence that is complacency or apathy or again, imposed. Yeah. Interesting phrasing there where it's silence that is chosen versus silence that is forced. I think the same could be said for noise, noise that is chosen versus noise that is essentially forced upon us. We've gotten to the point, and this again goes back to my kids and generational stuff that I've talked about. We've habitualized choosing noise over silence. And I'm curious Let's start to talk practicality here. How can we on an individual basis start to choose silence for the right reasons at the right times and reap some of those benefits? Yeah, it's a really important question. And I mean, the first step is to appreciate it, is to recognize that it's something valuable for us, is to recognize that it's actually something worth savoring in our lives. And in terms of how to actually bring that into practice, You know, we offer a very simple suggestion to notice the noise in our lives and tune into silence. You know, from time to time, take some time to study where is there noise that's interfering in our lives and study how to navigate it. Then notice the little pockets of peace that exist in our lives. Even if the silence is only available for a couple of seconds, maybe even one second, how deeply can we go into this little space of silence? Not just the quantity of the silence, but the quality of the silence. And then from time to time, can we find deeper periods of silence where we can go deep into the silence and encounter what we sometimes refer to as rapturous silence. So in the book, we lay out a range of 33 different strategies for individuals from time to time in these bigger moments, for families and friends groups, for workers together in an office, teams, managers. And then we look at society as a whole, what we could do to build a society that honors silence. Lee, you want to give us a few examples of how to find silence in the day-to-day? Sure. Just starting with your own life, um, we're looking at what is within your sphere of control and your sphere of influence. So if it's outside of your control, you know, you let it go. But what can we do something about? So one of the areas that we tend to have the most control is just in our own personal practices. So can we bring more exquisite attention to something we already do? We're not interested in adding things to your to-do list. But if making coffee every morning is part of your ritual, can you... Slow that down 10%, just 10% slower and bring some exquisite attention to that process. Bring some quiet to it. So it's not just that rush, hurried, spilling grinds, that kind of thing. So that's another, just one simple practice to bring a little bit more intention, 10% slower. Another one is little gifts of silence. So when you do find yourself out in the world and maybe in a long line or in a lot of traffic, that you take that moment not to fill, like let's say you're in a long line to not just grab for your phone and see what's going on or check your email, but instead to just appreciate that moment of unstructured time and take it in as silence, as quiet, as a time to reboot, to connect. So 
working that throughout the day, that's no doubt going to happen within, <laughs> within moments. Another big concept we bring in is ma, a Japanese concept, an aesthetic principle that is translated as pure potentiality. So it's this appreciation that is throughout the Japanese art. So like ikibana flower arrangement and the architecture and haiku poetry, there's this emphasis where the silent spaces, the emptiness is as important as the piece, the structure, the content of the piece. And so we invite in like ma, inviting in ma to our day in the workplace. How can we bring more ma to our meetings? How can we bring more ma into our brainstorming sessions? So can we reflect in quiet on what's been discussed in terms of idea generation? Can we post ideas and then Maybe in silence, you know, vote for those ideas or anonymously. Can we get more space for the quiet voices to come in, the marginalized thinking? We have found in our work, Justin and I, that that's where real breakthrough thinking, real novel thinking comes in. And on the issues that we've been most passionate about and interested in, that's what's going to make a difference. Not conventional thinking, not the tyranny of the fastest and the loudest always prevailing. Those are some great individual first steps. I'm sure there's many more. I think from my experience, one of the things that I've done is, again, because we've been so habitualized to noise, is I'll take the dog for a walk with headphones and listen to a podcast. And instead of doing that, deciding, okay, there's not an, a complete absence of noise as I walk around my suburban you know, neighborhood or whatever. I can still hear cars. I can still hear the wind. I can still hear leaves blowing and, and all of that, but it's to a much smaller and even lower decibel level that just getting comfortable with doing that, even occasionally, shows that it's possible. Totally. And it comes back to this whole thing about how we're habituated to see stress as aliveness, as a culture. You know, when you're asking about, you know, why we produce so much noise and why that's the default. It's like in talking with some of the neuroscientists we talked with, we heard a lot about how we have this idea of happiness and well-being that's associated with a dopamine rush, when ultimately that means a tense stress state. Judson Brewer, who's an MD, PhD, veteran researcher of um, the psychology of neuroscience and mindfulness. When we asked him about the meaning of noise in the mind and silence in the mind, he said that noise in the mind is the state of contraction and silence in the mind, according to almost everyone he studied this with is a state of expansion. And that's really what we're getting for is like when you're walking around the neighborhood with the dog without headphones in, without anything much going on, how can we get comfortable with this state of expansion, which runs counter to the idea in our culture and our society of what is well-being, what's happiness, what's immersion and what we're actually doing? We really want to encourage an experimental mindset and really put it back to you and the, the reader and the listener to be tuning into your actual felt experience. Like, is that listening to the podcast bringing you quiet or is it actually adding noise? It could be that on Wednesday it was bringing you quiet, but on Thursday it's actually just adding to the noise. So this isn't a prescriptive book, right? Where it's like, do this, don't do this. The point is to tune in, to notice the noise and notice when it is noise, to discern that from something that is actually needing your attention, what we call a signal. So discerning the signal from the noise and then to tune into silence and to appreciate it and to make space for it in little ways. Again, this is not for monastics running off to a mountaintop. You know, we're not those people. We're trying to find it in the everyday, very rich filled lives that we lead and it could change day by day what that what brings us quiet what is actually our noise we talked a little bit about doing this awareness and practice which is going to be you know person to person on an individual level but what about say on a family level and even a step above that a, a team at work or even a whole organization or the world at large like i you know as we ramp up what does that look like? How do we facilitate that? Dude, yeah, it's a great question. You know, and we at first thought about silence in a solitary kind of way. But over time, we started to realize that 
the power of silence is magnified when it's shared. You know, there's a reason people meditate together, for example, rather than alone so often. There's a presence that happens. I used to work on Capitol Hill in D.C., and I had the experience to teach meditation to people who work there. And that was such a wild experience because everyone was going through their own stressful time in their life. And we would just sit in this room, you know, 40 or so people in a congressional office building in our suits and the whole deal and just sit in the silence and connect to the silence. And you could feel this shift happen in the energy of the room. So what we propose in the book is that we can do the same thing in our family lives, including with young kids. I mean, I have two-year-old twins and a five-year-old, six-year-old now. She just turned six on Sunday. <laughs> Lee is a teenager. And, uh, you know, we explore what it means, for example, to study the noise in a home or an environment like a workplace. And we describe a paradox in the book that the key to finding quiet together is often having conversations about quiet, you know, having some talk about quiet so that we can express what we need and help shift the norms and help shift the cultures around quiet get into some of the specific practices. But, you know, one thing I think about a lot is how in working on Capitol Hill, you know, where I had that opportunity to teach meditation, the norm was total noise all the time. TV blasting, constant interruption, expectation that you're always on, on your phone, on email and texts. And we look at the example of how when the delegates to the Constitutional Convention, 1787, were writing the document in Philadelphia, they had a giant mound of dirt built outside the convention hall so that they could have pristine attention for doing the work that they wanted to do. And we thought about comparing that to what it's like in Capitol Hill today. It's the polar opposite. But that's a choice at some level. We can have a culture that honors silence, whether that's a home culture, a friends group culture, a workplace culture, a national culture, or we could have a culture that, you know, is all about maximum noise. So Lee has a lot of experience actually cultivating these cultures. What would you say, Lee, about how we can actually do it? Well, I think to some degree, it's about that bringing that that default to the foreground because it is in the background when it's our default. So what is our default uh, way of being with silence and noise? And when I was working with, or I continue to work with a lot of chemists trying to remove toxic chemicals, are the default for this group, and they're so concerned about these toxic chemicals in our products and our homes, was to pour a lot of data out at each other and present a lot of PowerPoints and to kind of bombard one another with the facts. And that was effective to a certain degree. And then the diminishing returns were felt. <laughs> and the issue was very complicated. And there was a way in which it had been addressed over and over again, but it wasn't really addressing the core issue that there are tens of thousands of largely unregulated chemicals in our products. And if they ban one, they get a quick substitute. So that was a whack-a-mole kind of scenario that was going on. So they needed to break through that patterning and they couldn't come at it in the same way that they had via data and PowerPoints and white papers and things like that. So we ended up taking them out into the redwoods for multiple days to really sink into the importance of what they were trying to address actually in the natural environment that they were there to protect so outside of the fluorescent lights and the four walls and the cement block, you know, kind of offices that they were in. And we limited the amount of time that they would do these PowerPoint presentations and instead gave them time to hike and be together. And there was no Wi-Fi, blissfully so. And in that environment where the silence was really informing their decisions and they were thinking differently, they came up with a strategy that is now a bipartisan strategy for addressing some of these of the most dangerous chemicals that are in our products like PFOS and other things. So it's not fixed. It's not over. There's a long path ahead, but we would have never come to those solutions if we were in the, you know, back in their offices and approaching the problems in the way they had. Yeah, framing it that way, it seems like one of the benefits of silence is being able to unleash our creativity in a way to to do better work. So people that are thinking, oh, it's a productivity show. Why would we need silence? Silence is the lack of inputs. I need inputs to be able to react to those inputs, to create things and make things and do all the things. 
this is actually saying no if you limit those inputs or are very selective or or curative about those inputs you can actually come up with better work and actually do not just better work but faster work maybe i love the way you put that eric you know about silence is really limiting the inputs and that's so counterintuitive for the work of productivity i mentioned before this this ancient greek philosopher and mathematician and leader Pythagoras, who, you know, some people remember from middle school math class for that theorem about finding the long side of a right triangle. And, you know, he came up with so many extraordinary discoveries, this person, Pythagoras, 2,500 years ago. And one of the questions we really look at in this book is like, what is it that even in this age of so much technology and so much speed and innovation, what is it that keeps us from the truly generative new world-changing discoveries that can help us solve the really big challenges that humanity is facing right now? Because for all the innovation that's happening, we're not coming up with creative solutions, generative solutions at that scale, at that level. And we look at how Pythagoras said that silence was an indispensable part of the work of true discovery. So, Eric, I mean, I like that the, you know, the core framing of your show is, you know, beyond the to-do list because so often the to-do list is about, all right, how many boxes am I checking? You know, am I getting done with the work that I'm supposed to be doing? But is the work really taking care of the work? Is the work that we're doing in our lives really taking care of the work that's going to make humanity, you know, place humanity on a sustainable, good footing that's going to solve so many of the really time-sensitive challenges we face right now and produce a truly better world? So productivity is not always, you know, it's not always the same thing as coming up with real, deep, profound solutions. And that's what this book is about. You know, not just the quantity, but the quality of creative thought and work. I'm just reminded of one of the interviews we conducted with Gordon Hempton, this great acoustic ecologist. And he's a man who's gone around the world a couple of times to record the quietest places on earth to help preserve those soundscapes. And he gave us a tip for his to-do list (laughs) that we're going to give to beyond the to-do list. And that is to take your to-do list for a hike to go as far as you can, say, out into nature and to allow the silence of that space, the quiet of that space, including, of course, bird song and wind song. And, you know, these are not things laying claim on our attention. So they're quiet for us, right? Even if they're sounds. So to absorb the silence of that space and when you feel ready to take out that to-do list and to see what really belongs on the to-do list from that deeper place that deeper connection to silence. And when he did that, because his to-do list had gotten out of hand and he had a little, he had a little rule for himself that it got, it gets beyond a certain length. Then he has to go take it out into nature and see what's true because what feels true when tethered to his computer and at his desk is different than when he gets out into that silent, quiet space. So when he did that, he opened up his to-do list and marked off something like five months of work that seemed absolutely imperative at his desk, but in the depth of nature in that place wasn't as important as he thought. So he took off a day and saved himself five months of unnecessary to-dos. Now that's what I call going beyond the to-do list. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Oh, perfect. Perfect way. I'm going to tie it up there because that's, that's kind of the point right there. What you just talked about. I can't help but think that this book needs to be in my rotation of talking about it books when it's people ask me, hey, what's the latest productivity book I should be checking out? This has now gotten into that top 10, so it will be recommended by me. But I want to point people to where they can find it and dive deeper into it, whether that's on your own sites or on Amazon or wherever. I know that you've also written a bunch of different articles across a bunch of different platforms What's like one or two great places for people to go and dive deeper into this topic with the two of you? You can go to our website, astreastrategies.com, and that's spelled A-S-T-R-E-A strategies.com. And there is a tab there with all the media you described and, you know, really looking at articles specific to the workplaces and towards 
what we can do as a culture and all kinds of, and the science behind so they can get into that. The book can be found anywhere, Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. And thank you so much for that beautiful endorsement. We're so touched. But that book can be found anywhere you buy books, Amazon, uh, bookshop.org, all those places. And for the auditory lover, the people who love listening to books, we love the reader of our book, Prentice Oniemi. And so we highly recommend people check that out. That's one reason to not be silent. Exactly. (laughs) Perfect. Justin and Lee, it's been amazing talking with you. I am really glad we got this opportunity and uh, that I was able to highlight this book for people. I think this is something that we've really only scratched the surface of in this conversation. You go much deeper in the book, but not only that, the book is even just a starting place towards the longer, deeper conversation that needs to be had about this. So thank you so much for starting this. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. This has been just wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this lack of silence while listening to this podcast, but that you gained a greater appreciation for the essentialness of silence in our world. Not just the world at large, but your world, your atmosphere, your internal thinking, your screen time, all these different places where we really need to be making sure that we not only create space for silence, but intentionally protect it with boundaries. If you enjoyed this conversation, I would love for you to share it with somebody. Do me that favor. Do them that favor. Share this with them. Hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice, wherever you're listening to this, on the web even, or head on over to the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com and share it from there. That's also where you can find a link to the book, Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise, and links to find out more about it. That's also where you can find the link to shortcasts of Beyond the To-Do List brought to you by me and Blinkist. Shortcasts are quick 7-10 to minute podcast episodes distilling down past episodes of Beyond the To-Do List into short, sweet, bite-sized forms. You can check those out for free by going to beyondthetodolist.com slash Blinkist, or again, click that link in the show notes. Thank you again for sharing. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next episode.